Greetings. My name is John Huggins. I'm the chaplain at Berry College, and uh, I'm the third string quarterback this morning. Uh, I was filling in for Jeremy Marshall, who would have been filling in for our pastor, Brian Pierce. And this is really cool. I mean, if I want a wardrobe change halfway through, I can just go with this. I like that guy. I appreciate the analogy that Steve used at the beginning of our service uh, to talk about the way a wine kind of sore tries to savor the taste and get the most out of it. That's a really great way of thinking about what we're trying to do with Psalm 145. <clears throat> That's especially helpful if you're sort of used to reading the Bible. You're sort of used to the way that the Bible sounds. You need help um, meditating on t- a text. Allowing it not to just go through your head or through your ears, uh, but to get from your mind into your heart. It requires reading the Bible slowly. That's actually one of the benefits of learning Hebrew or Greek, if you ever did that in college or seminary. Because uh, it, it makes you read the Bible slowly, and in reading it slowly, you're sometimes you're able to get more of the meaning. And you don't just let phrases pass you by. And that's what I want to help us not do by reflecting a little bit on this psalm this morning. <clears throat> I want to say a quick prayer. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> psalm 145 struck me just uh, uh, maybe several weeks ago as I was reading through the psalms in my own Bible reading at all, all the times where it says that the Lord is something <clears throat> and highlights some quality or attribute of God uh, that uh, we should pay attention to. Um, this Psalm 145 is called a song of praise. It's the last Psalm of David in the book of the Psalms. It's also in the form of an acrostic poem, which means that in Hebrew, each verse begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So there's some literary artistry going on in crafting it to begin with. I've titled the sermon, The Lord is blank, or God is blank. How we answer the question, who is God, is really the most important question we could ask or answer. It affects everything about us, and how we answer it becomes the most important thing about us. Because our picture of God, what we imagine him to be in our minds when we pray or when we speak of him, it actually shapes our entire worldview. It shapes how we understand where things come from, what the purpose of things is, our purpose as well as the purpose of everything else, how we determine meaning in life, as well as how we determine morality and where things are going. Who is God? In academic studies, we call this theology proper. There's all kinds of theology topics that we might cover. We might talk about the church, that's ecclesiology, or study of the end times, this is eschatology. But when we're talking about God himself, his own being, it's, it's called theology proper. So that's what we're doing this morning, a little bit of theology proper. Who is God? Could there be a more important question? Often we uh, talk about in church, and rightly so, who we are because of Christ, because of the things God has done for us. This morning, I wanted us to zero in more on who God is and be captured anew by this vision of who he 
says he is in his word. Well, I looked up online uh, some definitions for God and found some interesting things. Most of these came from Oprah interviews. People who I think she considered to be authoritative in some way. And so she asked them, how, how do you define God? She asked a number of people this question. These are some of the answers that were given in this little video that I saw on there. I won't tell you who said them all, just for time's sake. And some of them I can't pronounce. So. One person says, there is no definition for God. Words diminish him. Even though Christians claim that there actually is someone called the word of God. One person said that God is our divine self, the highest place within each of us. So smooth, and syrupy. Doesn't it make you feel good? <clears throat> Somebody said that God is the source of you. Another person says that God is an energy, a spiritual energy that makes no judgments. Well, of course not. This would make no judgments and makes us know what we ought to do with our lives. One person said that God is all encompassing love, the source of all reality, of all being. Another person said that God is my beloved, but then went on to say that no one knows God but God. So this person loves someone they don't know. Another person said that God is that which is beyond and within all life. Another one says it's the ever-present essence of love. Interestingly, one person said that God is law because law is what governs the nature of the universe. Another person said that God is all that is. God is everything. Now, they probably thought they were being, you know, creative and hip and spiritually cool. But this is, of course, an old idea called pantheism, the idea that God is everything. And then another person, this is Deepak Chopra. You've probably seen some of his books, says that God is the evolutionary impulse of the universe. Infinite creativity, infinite love, infinite compassion. Okay. So those are some ideas that people in the world who are considered spiritual authorities in some way, how they define God. But in Psalm 145, I think we can get a more clear picture. A lot of those are very esoteric, abstract ideas and are just describing certain qualities. You notice there is no personal account of God in those definitions. God is not regarded as a person to whom you can relate, but perhaps some essence that you can sort of feel, you can sort of jive with. It's sort of uh, the force. And so that's what we ought to be saying. Instead of God bless you, you know, or something after you sneeze, it's may the force be with you. You know, may the force be with you. <clears throat> in Psalm 145, we get a much more clear picture and definition of God, one that is both more personal and more powerful. It's not just the result of us making stuff up and saying, I like the way that sounds. That feels nice. That's God. In that sense, we're creating God in our own image rather than allowing God to reveal himself to us. So what are some of the things we see or learn about God? Psalm 145 is packed full of theology proper. But you don't have to. If Psalm 145 is all you had, you would be doing pretty good at knowing essentially who God is. 
we would be missing only one critical factor, which I'll get to later. But what are some of the things we see about God in this chapter? It's a good place to go if you want to teach somebody. You know, the God that we believe in is this God. Uh, uh, Tom Wright tells this story of being a chaplain at Oxford or Cambridge. I think he served at both and meeting new students as they would come in. And sometimes as he was meeting him, they would know he was the chaplain. And if they wanted to express that they had no desire to relate to the chaplain, they might say something like, I just want you to know that I don't believe in God. And he would say, oh, really, which God is it that you don't believe in? And then try to pull out of them some definition for God. And usually, more often than not, the definition that they gave, he would reply by saying, oh, I don't believe in that God either. I believe in the God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And then we go on from there. You can begin this way. I believe in the God that's revealed here. We'll start here with 145. What does it say about him? Well, it says, let's go through a couple of things or several things, actually. First, it establishes at the beginning that God is the king and sovereign over all things. I will extol you, my God, and king is how it begins. Later, later on, it refers to his everlasting kingdom, his rule and dominion enduring through all generations. Also, in the early parts of the psalm, it refers to God's awesome deeds, his abundant goodness, his wondrous works. I'm using the uh, ESV, which might be slightly different from what's up here. I think this might be NIV. But you get similar phrases. Those, kind of, those kinds of phrases you ought not to read over when you're, just read, when you're reading through your Bible. And just kind of be like, yeah, his awesome deeds, his abundant goodness, and wondrous works. But stop and think about them. What are the awesome deeds of God? Why does this person say that God's goodness is abundant? Why does he call his works wondrous? That kind of meditation can actually grip your heart. I was uh, several weeks ago gripped by a phrase, uh, the phrase tender mercy. I was reading scripture and there was a reference to God's tender mercies. And it hit me like never before because it was during a time and I'm kind of habitually this way. I'm sort of unmerciful with myself when I sin. Anybody else like that? Think about it. And I sort of imagine or will impose, like all these people do, impose my impressions upon God and assume he relates to me this way. <clears throat> that God's sort of like reluctantly merciful to me. <laughs> uh, do you imagine God as being reluctantly merciful to you? Um, sort of like, well, that's just what he's got to do. <clears throat> but to imagine his mercies being tender, that was a blessing to me. Other things that it says in verse 8, I want to highlight, because verse 8 is, um, this is how God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, and it's a refrain that, that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. In many ways, this is how God was known to the Jewish people, to the Israelites of old. When they thought about Yahweh, the great I am, the phrase that then would echo in their mind afterwards, after thinking about the name, is this phrase. It starts with the Lord, which is in all caps there. So it's translating the word Yahweh, which we call the Tetragrammaton. It says he is the one who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. What if every time you said the word God or Jesus, this is what echoes in your brain. You hear 
right after that, even if you don't say it, but you hear it in your head, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, because you know that that's who God is. That's the mental picture. Sometimes there's this wrong, uh, it's this misconception that uh, God in the Old Testament was all about law and wrath, and then he became gracious when Jesus came. So it's like Jesus sort of changed God's heart. And this, uh, only peop- you can only say that if you don't read the Bible and don't know anything about it. Um, this is how God has always been known, gracious and merciful. So when you relate to him, this is the God you relate to. The next verse says that the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. <clears throat> the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. One of the things that struck me about this verse is that all part. There's actually lots of, the word all is used several times in the chapter. The Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he's made. Doesn't that just give you the impression of just this hugely generous spirit of a happy God? Not a stern or angry God. One who's happy to be merciful to everything he's made and to provide for everything that he's made and to just be good without distinction. He's good to the good and good to the bad, providing for everything what it needs. If that's true of God, and we are the people who claim an allegiance to him, who claim to trust in him, who are seeking to be renewed in his image, to be the image of God is to be a reflection of him. The question this brings to mind is, are we good to all? Are Christians known as being people who are good to everybody? who are characterized by being merciful to everyone. I love that. Other things it says about him as we go through the chapter, it says that God is faithful and kind. In fact, in verse 13, it says, faithful in all his words, kind in all his works. And that phrase, kind in all his works, is repeated. It's in there twice. So when you think about the things that God is doing in the world, what is God doing in my life? Whatever it is that God is doing in my life, it is kindness. That can be tough to believe. Because it says he's kind in all of his works. There is some kindness, even in the harsh realities of life. We experience a fallen world that God has let play out the world we wanted. He's let it play out according to its trajectory. But in the midst of those hardships and sufferings and fallenness of the world, God comes to us with his kindness. I just think kindness is one of the most attractive, powerfully attractive concepts. Have you ever meditated on that word? There's a proverb that says, what's desirable in a man is kindness. What God wants to see in us. Because it's true of him. And then when we get to verse 14, oh, I hope you will find this encouraging today. When it says, the Lord upholds all, there's all again, who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Do any of you this morning feel like you're falling? And like you're not, you can't juggle life's many demands and you just feel like giving up. The balls are dropping. Or perhaps you feel like you're falling in terms of failing. I just can't get it right. I just can't get myself together. I just can't keep myself 
from this bad pattern of life or thinking. You have this awesome promise, this generous promise that God's able to uphold you. And when you were bowed down after having fallen, he'll raise you up. He'll raise you back up. He doesn't kick you out of the house. He doesn't disown you. He raises up those who are bowed down. If you're in that position, there's like no better word for you to hear. Verses 16, 17, uh, 15 and 16 talk about the way God's providence supplies the needs of all things. And that's good. Moving to verse 17, it tells us that God is righteous in all his ways. And then there's the phrase again, kind in all his works. It's good that those two things go uh, together. I don't know. Sometimes the word righteous can be like a scary word to us in the Bible. We think righteousness, that's like the thing I am not. And if God is righteous uh, and deals with me righteously, that won't be good. Um, The words righteous and just are essentially the same in both uh, Hebrew and Greek. So if we say, you might read it, that God is just in all of his ways. We might think, oh, no, I don't want God to, to do justice for me, although much of the world does want God to do justice for them in terms of restorative justice, making things right. That's what's really at the heart of the word, both of righteous and just, is that God makes things right. Even when the Bible speaks of judgment, the idea is that God will come and make things right in the world. So these are things that are actually celebrated, prayed for, and desired in Scripture. We want judgment to come, not because we're mean and we want God to, like, flick people into hell, that kind of thing. We want God to come and make things right, to stop the violence, to stop the injustice, to stop the pain and suffering in our world. Don't we all want that? We all want God to bring justice then, to bring judgment and righteousness. In this sense, we should understand it as the Lord is doing what's right in all of his ways. And that kindness goes right along with it. Verse 18 is especially important. When I pray, why should I have any confidence that God will hear me when I pray? Where will the confidence come from? Well, sometimes I can't muster up the confidence that God will hear when we pray on my own, out of my own emotional resources. But I have something more powerful than my emotional resources. The Holy Scriptures telling me that the Lord is near to all who call on him. And to bank on that, to rely on it. When, I th- when it says to all who call on him in truth, another translation has to, uh, says that um, sincerely, with sincerity. The idea is that from a true heart, genuinely and sincerely, you're calling on the Lord. Not just going through the motions. He is near. It goes on to talk about how God preserves us. We might think of that as he takes care of us through trouble and ultimately preserves us through judgment, like Noah in the ark, or like the people of Israel through the Red Sea. And in the end, he destroys the wicked. Now, again, you might think everything in this verse, in this chapter, has been really awesome, awesomely positive. I wanted to say something about him destroying the wicked. That just sounds like the mean-spirited Christianity that we hear, hear about in, in the media and all that. Once again, I just want to remind you what I was saying about judgment beforehand. 
For God to say yes to certain things that are good, beautiful, true, and just means that God must say no to the the things that are the opposite of all those words, the things that are untrue, false, not beautiful, not good. And in order for that which is true or good or beautiful or just to flourish unthreatened, as in God's new creation, then the things that threaten those things, that things that could potentially corrupt that must be dealt with, must be put away. It's all for the sake of flourishing. <clears throat> and so God says no to some things. Ultimately, Psalm 145 is uh, personified for us, put into a clearer uh, perspective, a clearer view in the person and work of Jesus. In fact, the way I would fill in the blank, I think the way you can best fill in the blank of the Lord is blank or God is blank is by putting the word Jesus there. The Lord is Jesus. Or it's just simply reversing the early New Testament confession that Jesus is Lord. Or that God is Jesus. Not to reduce the Trinity to the second person, that's not my point, but to make the point that we... What we know of God, we see most clearly in the person and work of Jesus. He is the full revelation of God's being. I want to share a couple of scriptures that demonstrate that. Before I do so, I want to tell you, there's a, um, a popular, very popular uh, writer. He's the Christ- he, he does Christian scholarship. He himself is either atheist or agnostic. His name is Bart Ehrman. You may have heard of him. He sold lots of books, and you can see a lot of them at Barnes & Noble. One of his more recent ones is called How Jesus Became God. And it's a study of essentially developmental Christology or evolutionary Christology. He's trying to say that nobody thought of Jesus as being divine or God's son in the beginning. But only over time, through the first three or four centuries of the church, this stuff sort of emerges. And they eventually get to a divine son of God. Well, a group of scholars uh, wrote another book in response to how Jesus became God. They, They titled their book, How God Became Jesus. Just switching the name around the names, the words around, and uh, it's an excellent answer to the issues that Bart Ehrman uh, presents. Uh, They are able to tackle his arguments. I highly recommend it to you, How God Became Jesus. It's a good book. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, it tells us in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we know that that was Jesus, though? Because later on it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Colossians 1.15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in verse 19, and that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him, that is in Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it tells us that in the past, God spoke to us through prophets, But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In other words, God is not some mystery that you can't put words or definitions to because that would minimize him. Sure, we understand that God is beyond our language, but God has accommodated himself to our understanding and reveals himself. He does speak about who he is and doesn't leave it to infinite mystery and guesswork and us making stuff up. He has spoken to us. By his son. Who the next verse says. The son is the radiance of the glory of God. 
the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus is the answer to the question, who is God? It's the Christian rule that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. And any definition of God that is contrary to the person and work of Jesus is sub-biblical. Jesus himself says in John 14, verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That's huge. That's, that's crazy stuff. You don't talk like that without getting yourself killed, which is what happens. But it's what he claims. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So God, the great and powerful that we encounter in the Old Testament, comes even closer. He does still move close in the Old Testament. That's what the tabernacle and the temple and all that stuff are all about. But he comes even closer in the incarnation of Jesus, coming to lay down his life for us on the cross, to rescue us from condemnation, the power of sin and death, and then defeats those things in his resurrection, and then sends us the Holy Spirit so that we can become the reflections of God that we are meant to be. But how can we know what what we should be reflecting if we don't know what God is like? And if I say that if you want to know what God is like, you must look at Jesus, you can't make up Jesus either. There's people who like to do that too. Like, oh, I just like to think of Jesus as being this way. These are people who don't read the Gospels uh, or have any inclination. You know, they just pull nice little notions out of life. Sweet notions. Sweet, gentle Jesus. Um, who is sweet and gentle at times, and then harsh and scary at other times. Tough and tender together. You need to read the Gospels. You need to get soaked in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to know Jesus. But not just those Gospels, because the rest of the New Testament is proclaiming Jesus. So getting to know the Bible is how we get to know Jesus. Um, I love the creeds, like the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And uh, but one of the things about them is they emphasize, because of the, the issues going on when they were crafted, they more emphasize the identity of Jesus rather than like the character of Jesus or even the deeds of Jesus. So we get like, and I believe in Jesus, uh, born of the Virgin Mary. And the next line is, suffered under Pontius Pilate. But wait, wait, wait. There's a whole lot of things that happened between born of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John between those two events. And it's very important for us to know those things. They went to great lengths to tell us what God is like by showing us what Jesus is like. Okay, let me wrap this up by saying, uh, if we want to know what God is like, we must go to Scripture and we must look at Jesus. This is good theology. Good theology is not saying, what are the characteristics and traits that people in our world think are most attractive and reasonable? And we'll say, God is those things. Instead, look at the God who exists and is plainly revealed in Scripture, and you'll find one that's both more personal, more powerful, more compelling, more captivating than the stuff people make up. And then good theology doesn't lead to self-righteousness. It doesn't lead to people thinking they've got it all together. It doesn't lead to pride. Good theology actually leads to deeper and more genuine worship. Good theology leads to a more wholehearted devotion to 
to Christ. Good theology compels a person to practice their faith. So theology leads to worship, devotion, and practice. Bad theology does not lead to those things and just causes conflicts usually. Um, So one of the things I'm saying with this psalm this morning, what we're hoping to do is to behold your God. Look at who he is. See if there's anything in your own understanding that doesn't conform to what we're looking at here. And to lay those things aside. Then to put our trust in what God actually says about himself and surrender anew to this God. When you read Psalm 145, and if you think, if God is really like this, then that's just worth celebrating. That's just worth getting excited about, being happy about. I relate to the God who's this way. Look at every time the text says, the Lord is this. Underline it in your Bible and commit it to your heart. If nothing else, take verse 8. Take it home with you. Put it up somewhere in your house. Teach your kids this verse so that they'll always know that the God they relate to is the God of grace and mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. I think there is a correlation between knowing the God that actually exists and loving him and reflecting him. These three words are kind of how I summarize all of Christian living, really, is knowing, loving, and reflecting God. I use these three words all the time. Uh, but if you, you cannot reflect a God you do not love, at least not well or long. You get tired of it, you get burnt burn out, and so you give up. <clears throat> you also can't love a God that you don't know. So God hasn't kept himself secret or hidden. He has spoken. He has revealed himself. He said, this is who I am. And I think that that vision of God in Bible and in Christ is more captivating to the mind, that it captures the heart and causes you to love him. And knowing him and loving him leads to you wanting to reflect him. You feel compelled to more and more. So let us pray that God opens our eyes, like we sang this morning, to know him more fully so that our hearts can love the God that really exists and not a figment of our imagination. And then we can truly reflect the God that is so we're really shining his light into our world. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for the grace to know you, love you, and reflect you in our lives. To be truly captivated by the person of Jesus, to have our heart more and more captured by his love and power, and because of the Holy Spirit, Spirit, feel compelled to follow you, to live for you in this world. Please draw us afresh to your word. May it come alive to us again like never before. That Jesus himself would not just be a plastic, flattened out figure in our minds. But the dynamic image of the invisible God that he is. That we would be happy and eager to be conformed into his image. I ask in Christ's name. Amen.